We've been going for some time through uh, our Confession of Faith, the London Confession of Faith, London Baptist Confession of Faith, and uh, just paragraph by paragraph, and we've spent a significant portion of time in chapter 8, which deal, the subject is of Christ our mediator, and the, the London Confession of Faith is in the pew in front of you. You're, you're more than welcome to look on with me. I wanted to read you paragraph 8 of chapter 8 of our confession. It says this, it says, to all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he certainly and effectually applies and imparts it. He intercedes for them, he unites them to himself by his spirit, and reveals to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation. He persuades them to believe and obey, and he governs their hearts by his word and spirit. He overcomes all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom, using methods and ways that are perfectly consistent with his wonderful and unsearchable governance. All these things are by free and absolute grace, apart from any condition for obtaining it that is foreseen in them. And so that is paragraph eight of our confession of faith. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the gospel of Mark chapter 8. The gospel of Mark chapter 8, we're looking at the last section in Mark 8, and we're going to read through to the first verse of chapter 9. And, and you know, we um, try to be diligent at putting our the various passages of Scripture that I'm going to reference up on the screen for you. Uh, this week, uh, we did not, I changed large portions of my sermon and did not turn it in on time. And so <clears throat> there will be some uh, passages of Scripture that I'm going to read and reference this morning that will not be on the screen. But it's a good reminder of this. Come to church and bring your Bible. <laughs> right? And, and so we don't want to depend on the... This is great. This is, you know, the screens are great. But bring your Bible. Let's work through our texts with an open Bible in hand. It's the best way to go about this. And uh, and so it's a good habit to bring your Bibles with you to church. Um, but let me read, starting with verse 34, again, just on down through the first verse of, of chapter 9. John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote these words. says, when he had called the people to himself, he's speaking of Jesus, with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In chapter 9, verse 1, And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've inspired it. We thank you that you've preserved it. We thank you that it has the power by your spirit to change our hearts, to shape our hearts. 
And so, Lord, we ask that now and we confess our absolute dependence upon you for, for being able to see things clearly. Lord, we can't see things clearly by ourselves, but Lord, we can see things clearly with your help as we gather this morning and look at your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things that <clears throat> came to my mind as I was studying this passage of Scripture um, are the, the, I was thinking about the, the deals that we try to strike with God. Right? How, how many times have you, have you heard someone say that they prayed to God, you know, maybe regarding a particular situation, maybe related to finances, it could be <clears throat> related to a relationship or a sickness, and they, they vowed to follow God if he would deliver them from their, you know, particular situation. All right, maybe, maybe you've made a vow like that. In fact, I, I know people that, that, that came to Christ because they were in such a desperate situation and they, they prayed to him and he graciously delivered them from it. In fact, you even see in the Old Testament, for those of us familiar with our Old Testament, you see how uh, various hardships uh, that God would providentially bring on people uh, would um, at times produce a repentance and a drawing near to God in the midst of those hardships. However, in our text this morning, we see Jesus speaking of drawing near to him. We see Jesus speaking of following after him, but without any conditions like that. Right? Actually, the way Jesus frames following him is in stark contrast to, to what I was just describing. It isn't, follow me and I'm going to deliver you from the sufferings that you're experiencing in the here and now. In fact, Jesus, in speaking of following him, right, he, he's in speaking about that at the same time, it seems to me from this text that suffering is the normative part is a normative part of the Christian experience. And, and according to our text this morning, following Jesus, desiring Jesus, is a forsaking in your heart of everything that is not him. Okay, desiring Jesus and following after Jesus is a forsaking in your heart of everything that is not Jesus. And we're going to consider that from kind of different perspectives this morning. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this teaching uh, from Jesus, and they all put it, uh, they put it, uh, all three of these gospel writers put it right after Jesus's plain teaching uh, about himself that we looked at last week, and they all put it right before the transfiguration of Christ, which we're going to look at next week. Now, Putting this after Jesus' plain teaching about the nature of his messianic work, and, and just by you know, way of reminder, and, and kids, when we're talking about messianic work, mean, the messianic work of Jesus, meaning that the Son of Man, Jesus prophesying about this, that the Son of Man came to suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders and that he had to die, right? And then gloriously in his exaltation, rise again, okay? So, so this, this is the messianic mission of Jesus that we looked at. And I think that putting what we're considering this morning, this denying oneself, this coming after Christ as we pick up our own cross, I think it's intentional that it's placed right after this plain, Jesus, uh, this plain teaching about Jesus and his messianic work. And one of the reasons that I think it's intentional 
is, is because, and we'll see this in the coming weeks and months, the, we'll see how, how the disciples of Jesus continued to be uh, baffled uh, about his, um, his teaching about his person and his work. They continued to not get it for quite some time. And, and what we have in our text this morning is Jesus saying to his disciples and to the broader crowd that he calls to himself, he's saying that you can't understand the messianic mission, right? You can't understand the significance of his coming death and, and his resurrection, right? And, and for us, we can't understand it as Christians looking back, right? But you can't understand it without walking the path of the cross, okay? You can't understand it without walking the path of the cross. The, the gospel of God isn't something that we just grasp and understand intellectually, Right? It is you know, a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and on the third day rose again. That's absolutely historical fact, and intellectually we do know that. But the gospel of God is something that we grasp by faith. Right? It, it, it's an experiential grasping that is initiated and directed and informed by the Spirit of God according to the Word of God. And those following Jesus at the time of this teaching that we're looking at this morning, they were still thinking of him as this great political liberator. Again, that, that's why his teaching about what he came to do that we examined last week was so foreign to the Jewish mind, right? So Jesus, he, he brings this messianic mission into even higher definition by telling his father, followers that they would walk the path, right? They themselves would walk the path, not of political liberation, but that they would walk the path of the cross, the path of denying yourself, the path of forsaking yourself. And that word deny in our text this morning, it carries with it this idea of disowning yourself, of disowning yourself, right? It's, it's understanding, and, and, and think about it this way. <clears throat> think of Peter, and, and this is a good way, maybe a, a Another way to think about it for us this morning, especially if we're, we've been considering that Peter was influential in the, the writing of the Gospel of Mark, right? But what did we see Peter do whenever Christ was arrested and put on trial? What did he do? He denied Christ, right? So we have Christ here, right? He, he disowned Jesus, and we have Mark recording the words of Jesus, again, being influenced by Peter, saying, you, you don't deny Jesus, you deny yourself. You don't disown Jesus, you disown yourself, okay? And this is an immensely, I think, beneficial truth to internalize as we face temptations this side of eternity. It's a very beneficial truth for us to internalize as we face sufferings of various kinds this side of eternity. We even see, you know, the Apostle Paul, he drives this point home to the church of Corinth, 
many of you would be familiar with this when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, which are God's. Now, how exactly does Jesus help us see what he means when he says, deny or disown yourself and follow me? How does Jesus help us in this teaching? Well, he uses the imagery of the cross. He uses the cross. Now, Think with me about the cross this morning, <clears throat> right? It's displayed in the baptismal behind me here, right? But how, how is the cross often displayed in society, right? We may get tattoos of it, right? We may wear it, uh, the cross as a, a necklace, or maybe we wear it as a, as a bracelet, or maybe you have the symbol of the cross as a bumper sticker on one of your vehicles. But that isn't how the early church, that, those aren't the images, obviously, that the early church would have thought of when Jesus told them, pick up your cross. Right? The imagery of a cross, it would have brought to mind the worst criminals you could think of, the worst of the worst. Right? It would have brought to mind public shame. Right? It, it was a torture device. It was a a way to execute somebody in such a way that it would bring shame to their family and to their friends. All right? It was a horrific way to die, and it would stain the reputation of your name for as long as people had memory of you. In other words, it was repulsive, and it was to be avoided at all costs. All right? That's the way in which a cross, this, this Roman instrument of death, not a Jewish invention of a death penalty, but that's the way that it would have been viewed. And Jesus says that to follow him requires an embracing of the cross. Right? That denying yourself, that disowning yourself is to take up a cross. And certainly this would have been cemented in the minds and the hearts of the disciples when Jesus himself would actually take his own cross Right, and that he would die on it. Now, <clears throat> knowing the, the meditations of the hearts of man, right? Jesus knowing that, right? knowing our proclivities to, to, to protect ourselves at all costs, right? Jesus speaks further about this path of denying oneself, this path of disowning oneself. He speaks further about this path of the cross. Right? He speaks further about what it means to desire him, what it means to follow after him. And he does it by giving his disciples and us a paradox and then two questions. Right? First, the paradox that we see in our passage. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Okay? Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Now, that doesn't seem right, does it? Huh? How do you lose when you're trying to save, but you save when you're trying to lose? It doesn't make sense to us, does it? But look at the two questions in, in our text that Jesus asks in addition to the paradox that he gives, because the qu questions give us insight into that paradoxical uh, teaching. 
The two questions, verse 36 and then verse 37. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And interestingly enough, this paradox, these questions, they reveal our backwards way of thinking about what matters. They reveal our tendency to be materialistic in our thinking. It reveals our distorted priorities. It reveals our overemphasis on what can be seen, our overemphasis on the here and now and our neglect of the unseen. It reveals our lack of consideration that we have a soul as well as a body. And we see that way of thinking pervasive in the disciples and in the crowd, right? And if, we, if we're honest, we see that way of thinking pervasive in our own lives. But they were concerned about what they could see only. Again, they wanted to make Jesus this political power and to set things right according to their understanding and according to their own timetable as well. And we see Jesus challenging that by speaking of the soul, and speaking of the gospel, and speaking of self-denial for the sake of Christ, and not self-fulfillment. So listen. Far from Jesus saying that the here and now doesn't matter, is Jesus here emphasizing and, and bringing into clearer view that we were made for eternity... And that eternity matters in the here and now. Right? The fact that we have souls, which is what Jesus is bringing into focus in this text, of the fact that we have souls should dictate how we live now. And, and the path of self-denial for Christ's sake and the gospel's sake should be a way of life for the Christian. In other words, it should touch absolutely everything in our lives. So that means... Husbands, selflessly loving your wives and your children, that matters. Faithfully leading them in worship, it matters. Bringing them to Lord's Day worship, it matters. Wives, respecting and submitting to your husband and nurturing your children in the Lord faithfully, it matters. It matters. Children, Obeying your parents in the Lord, it matters. Men, providing for your home matters. Right? Redeeming the time matters. Being a good steward, it matters. Leaving a legacy, it matters. Building a life in the here and now with eternity in mind, it matters. Right? What our text is saying this morning is that what is unseen, right? giving your soul unto the Lord, Worshiping the invisible triune God, prioritizing him and promoting his gospel within your sphere of influence, right? Living as one, in other words, who's not autonomous, but owned by creator God and bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. It organizes everything else in your life. It organizes everything. And we certainly overcomplicate it. But keeping in mind that you were created for eternity... Keeping in mind, again, that you are not autonomous, 
that you are owned by your creator, keeping in mind that the blood of Christ has purchased you and has redeemed you, that has an impact on the here and now. It organizes things. So if you're taking notes, this is the first thing I'd encourage you to write down. There's no such thing as a detached observer observer of Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as a detached observer of Jesus Christ. And I took that phrase, detached observer, from someone else, um, <clears throat> a theologian named William Lane. But I think it's fitting for this passage of Scripture. Right? We, we don't follow Jesus by verbal assent. We don't. We don't follow him by verbal assent. We don't follow Jesus as a spectator. We follow Jesus through our participating in him. We follow Jesus through our participating in him. We follow Jesus through our communion with him. We follow Jesus as the one who shares union with him. And when those things are happening in your life, there's a change that happens. You're not the same person that you were before that encounter. Right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? Psalm chapter 34, verse 8. Right? There's this spiritual tasting an intimate connection between the follower of Christ and Christ himself. And what was true of Jesus in his first advent, that he took up the cross so that we might have peace with God, right? It paves the way for a spiritual walking with him. And that spiritual walking with him is not one of self-gratification, right? It isn't one in which we live as godless uh, hedonists, pleasure seekers, Right, indulging ourselves in whatever way we see fit. No. The way of the cross is finding a superior pleasure by grace through faith in Christ that manifests itself in a selfless, God-centered living that in turn benefits those around you. In other words, right, it doesn't stay up in the ether. It doesn't stay up in the ether. Our faith, by grace, it shapes our moral character in the here and now. There's no such thing as a detached observer of Jesus Christ. When I sit across from people whose homes are out of order, marriages that are out of order, work ethic that's out of order, emotional life that's out of order, right, what I'm seeing is people who want to save their own lives. It's people that want to save their own lives. They're too self-focused. And they overcomplicate and give reasons for why they're behaving the way that they are. But in reality, what they're doing is making excuses for living in disobedience to the clear teaching of God's word. Right? They're not enjoying superior pleasure in Jesus. Right? They're chasing counterfeit pleasures in the here and now. The path is not the path of losing yourself for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake. It's the path of self-preservation, which is really the path of self-destruction. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and you're blind to this. And a, a good practical way to get a reality check is to ask the people close to you, probably the person sitting next to you. <clears throat> and, and, and let me give you, just to help you, to aid you some some heart-prodding questions, and I promise that if you're honest in answering them, then you'll know the condition of your heart. Right? You'll know the state of your soul. And the reason I say ask those that are close to you is because the state of our horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another, right, is indicative 
of the state of our vertical relationship, our relationship with our triune God, our relationship with the Lord. Think about that for a moment. That's the very, you know, we're going through the Ten Commandments in our confession of sin time, but God has structured his moral law in such a way that the first four commandments are about our vertical relationship with him. It's the first table of the law. The second table of the law, the six commandments are about our, our horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another, right? It's about our relationships with one another. <clears throat> if the first four aren't in order in our lives, right, if our relationship with the Lord isn't in order, then our relationships with one another is not going to be in order. Right? But here's some questions. What and, and who do you value above all else? Right? And do the habit, and, and again, we've got to be honest in order for this to work, but do the habits of your life reflect who or what you say you value? Do the habits of your life reflect who or what you say you value? Some more questions. Are you concerned more about being right? And this gets into some horizontal stuff, right? Are you more concerned about being right and vindicated in your relationships with others than you are about honoring the Lord? Are you a contentious, argumentative person? Do you find you're constantly offended? Do you complain a lot? Do you gossip about others? Do you minimize your sin? Yeah, everybody makes mistakes. I'm not perfect. And you maximize the sins of other people. Can you believe what so-and-so did? Are you more mindful of how others aren't serving you than of you serving others? What if I put questions in the format that Jesus asked the two questions in our text? What will it profit a man if he gains wealth and financial stability at the expense of being a present godly father? What will it profit a woman if she gets the Instagram lifestyle she always wanted, but at the expense of showing her children Jesus? What will it profit a college student who gets a degree, but at the expense of his or her integrity? What will it profit someone in their retirement years if they, as John Piper says, collect seashells, but waste 30 years that could have been leveraged for the kingdom of God by serving the younger saints? What are our priorities? What are our priorities? Our priorities, how we spend our time, show us where our heart is. Right? There's no such thing as a detached observer of Jesus. And the danger that many self-professed Christians are in is that we read our Bibles, right, and we listen to sermons, and we listen to podcasts, but we do so simply as observers. We're gathering data. We're getting smarter intellectual and probably even more cynical. It's what happens when you take in information, but you don't apply it to yourself. You become cynical and critical. But we may be getting smarter. We may be gathering data, but we're doing all that just again as detached observers. We're not on the path of following Jesus. We're not on the path of denying ourselves. We're not on the path of our Savior, but on the path of doing what we want while giving giving verbal assent to some shallow imposter form of Christianity. Some of you, not me, go to the gym every day. <clears throat> I know that's shocking to hear. But I was thinking about going to the gym. It's a path of self-denial, isn't it? Right? It matters what you eat. The regular routine matters. Right? Sacrifice is required. Right? Similarly, right, and that, that in some ways can point to 
uh, our, uh, spiritual lives, which, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about exercise for the body being profitable, but even our, you know, our spiritual discipline mattering more than that. But our spiritual lives, is, it's a path of self-denial. Yet when we speak about self-denial, we shouldn't have a picture of some gloom, depressed Christian, right? If that's what comes to our mind when we think the way of the cross, even though that's a hard path, and the way of self-denial, even though that's a hard path, we shouldn't seem gloom and depressed. And if that's what's coming to our mind, it's just because we've been shaped more by world, worldly thinking than we have been about the Word of God by the Spirit of God. Because what should come to our mind is joy everlasting. The joyful Christian is the Christian that walks the path of self-denial. The joyful Christian is the Christian that picks up his cross and follows after Jesus. The path of self-denial is the path that our Savior was on. Right? It's the path where we're given an opportunity to enjoy Him. It's the path in which we're given an opportunity to delight in Him. I love this quote from this bishop in the 500, Caesareus of uh, Arles. He said this, When the Lord tells us in the gospel that anyone who wants to be his follower must renounce himself, the injunction seems harsh. Right? We think he's imposing a burden on us, but an order is no burden when it's given by one who helps in carrying it out. To what place are we to follow Christ if not where he has already gone? We know that he, is a, he has risen and he has ascended into heaven. There then we must follow him. There's no cause for despair. By ourselves we can do nothing, but we have Christ's promise. Now, this is the way in which we have to approach the path of self-denial. Right? We're trusting in Jesus, and we're seeing this path of disowning ourselves, this path that Paul calls one of being poured out as a drink offering, as the path in which Jesus says, quote, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, we have it backwards. We have it backwards. The life that's full of burdens is the one in which we live in a consumeristic and selfish way. Right? The path of self-denial is the life in which Christ carries our burdens and gives us rest and thus the strength to continue on. Right? The path of self-denial isn't one in which you just put your nose to the grindstone until you burn out for Jesus. The path of denial, it starts with a day of rest, right? Every Lord's Day, every Sunday, we rest, then we work in light of that rest. We rest, then we work in light of the resurrection of Jesus. And as we do this, we find ourselves, because it's only in Christ that we find ourselves truly. Number two, if you're taking notes, and this is a little bit different in your... Um, I, I tweak this. It should say this. The path of self-denial is fueled by regular and proper reflection on Christ's coming again to judge the living and the dead. 
Okay, the path of self-denial is fueled by regular and proper reflection on Christ's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Look again at verses 38 on down to the first verse of chapter 9. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there's some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Okay. This is a passage that's wildly misinterpreted, okay? and, I, and I want you to note a couple of things in it. And again, look with me at the passage as I'm, as I'm speaking, but I want, I want to note a couple of things about this passage, and then I want to quickly take you to two other passages that we find in the Gospel of Matthew that I think will help bring clarity to how we should think about this Mark 8 to 9 passage. First, notice that Jesus in verse 38, when he speaks of the adulterous and sinful generation, he says this adulterous and sinful generation, right? He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Then notice what follows. Of him, the son of man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Then look at chapter 9. Assuredly, I say, there are some standing here, right? Standing in front of Jesus who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power, okay? Who is Jesus talking about? Is he giving a prophecy regarding a second coming, a second coming in the distant future after everyone he's speaking to has tasted death, right? Those are, those are questions for us to ask, and they're relevant to the overarching theme of this morning's message. So hold that, those questions and our theme in your head for a moment. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew, First Matthew chapter 24, first book in the New Testament, Matthew 24, and I want to look at verses 29, and I'm going to read down to verse 35, and then I'm going to take you to Matthew 10, okay? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, and, and note that, you know, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the power, powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Right? This sounds like end-of-the-world apocalyptic stuff, right? Verse 32, now... Learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near, right? So you also, the sign, there's signs about something is coming, right? So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now look with me at Matthew chapter 10. It's like a Bible drill. It's, um, verses 21 to 23. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you, won't have, you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, 
Why am I bringing these passages into the picture? Well, for starters, they all speak about the Son of Man coming. Right? In Mark 8, we see whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Right? In the Matthew 24 passage, we see, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then the tribes of the earth will mourn. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In Matthew 10, we see, assuredly, I say to you, you won't have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Right? Then we see in all three of these passages that Jesus applies what he's saying to his immediate followers, right? You see that in all, all three of these passages. In Mark 9, I, I tell you, there's some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present, right? Matthew 24, this, genera- this generation will by no means pass away. It's in verse 34. Matthew 10, you won't have gone through the cities of Israel, again, before the Son of Man comes. Now, follow with me, because this is important, right? Many people attribute these passages of Scripture as Jesus talking about his second coming. And there have been those skeptics and scholars that have used this to attempt to prove that Jesus was an error. If the Son of Man coming, right, in these passages refers to the second coming of Jesus, and Jesus said that it would happen in the lives of those who were witnesses to his first advent, then the prophecy is wrong. Jesus did not return bodily after uh, his ascension to definitively create a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus didn't put away sin and sorrow and disease, right? Not Again, not definitively. And, And so what I want to submit to you is that this isn't what the texts are talking about. Jesus isn't talking about here his second advent, his second coming. That's just what we've imported into the texts. These texts aren't referring to the second coming of Jesus that we're all now presently eagerly awaiting for. This is rather Jesus prophesying about his coming judgment on Jerusalem. This, the Son of Man coming on the cloud language that we see in Matthew, it's very apocalyptic, but if we're familiar with our Old Testament, then we would know that this language was utilized by the prophets when they were pronouncing God's coming judgment on the nations. And this judgment Jesus talked about in Matthew and in Mark Uh, that I just read to you was a judgment that did actually come. Jesus really did come in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And there were those who were witnesses to it that didn't taste death before they were witnesses of this great judgment. And this judgment that Jesus was talking about was the judgment of Jerusalem that culminated in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Now, I don't have time to get into all of what the destruction of the temple meant and how it was a part of what the the first century historian Josephus called the Jewish war, but it's important for us to know this. The destruction of the temple in AD 70 was God's way of concluding on shutting forever the the door on, on the Judaistic ways of worship. It was God's way of cementing the reality of Christ being prophet, priest, and king forever, of Christ being the fulfillment of the messianic promises in the Old Testament. No one is coming after Christ to do what Christ did in his first advent. There's no replacement for Christ. And it was God's way of judging those Jews who rejected Christ, those who did not walk the path of the cross, those who sought to save their lives, those who were ashamed of Jesus and his gospel. God judged them. 
He really did judge them. No, Jesus didn't physically return, but the Son of Man coming meant it was symbolic language for God is coming in judgment, and he's going to judge those in Jerusalem who have rejected Jesus and have rejected his gospel. Now, what do we do with this? Why does it matter for those of us that are far removed from the destruction of the temple in AD 70? Well, it matters a great deal. It matters because the judgment of Jerusalem, and we've got to listen closely here, the judgment of Jerusalem is only a shadow of a greater judgment that's coming. It's a shadow of a greater judgment that's coming. And the greater one includes Jesus physically returning. And when he returns, he's coming to judge the living and the dead. He's coming as the cosmic judge of the world. And we should reflect on this. And as we reflect on this, we should see that the things that Jesus talked about were coming in the first century, they really did come. And we have every reason to trust God and his word and, and trust what's coming in the future. We should think about this. It's a warning that's relevant for us today. Verse 38. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous sinful generation of him, the son of man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And in the West, we increasingly know the pressure of being shamed into compromising our commitment to Christ. Right? The apostles and the Jewish converts, they felt pressure from those in places of authority. All Christians felt pressure from political authorities. Our brothers and sisters around the world have faced pressure for many, many years. But there are some of you here this morning who are facing pressures to be ashamed of Christ in the way that you speak, in what you affirm or don't affirm. And for you, the stakes are high, right? You could lose your job. You could lose your livelihood. And I want to encourage you this morning, keep on the path of self-denial. It's a, it's a good path. It's a safe path. And it's the path in which you can rest assured that you're truly loving your neighbor because it's the path in which you're trying to warn them, to direct them toward this greater and righteous judgment that's coming, right? Our God is holy. Sin is not trivial. Christ died to save sinners, and we can find refuge in him. It's gloriously good news, isn't it? And it's good news that we must be committed to as we continue to face the hostilities of a society that genuinely hates good news. Let me close this morning just by giving you the mindset that we should adopt as we wrestle with this path of the cross. These are the words of the Apostle Paul who he gave up everything, right? He gave up financial stability. Right? He gave up social credit. Right? He gave up a highly esteemed position in society. Right? He gave up everything, but in reality, he gained everything. This is how he gives this, test, this part of his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. But what things were gained to me? And think about what things are gained to you this morning. You can fill, fill, fill up the list, right? These I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness on my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him 
in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's the way Paul puts it, right? The loss of all things is really not a loss when our surpassing value, our supreme value is placed on knowing Christ and on enjoying Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can truly know you, that Christ has made that possible. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us as Christians walk the path of self-denial, God. Walk this path of joy in the Lord. And that, Lord, our reflections on us being eternal beings, God, that you created us to be um, to, to live forever would shape how we live now. And God, that our reflection on Christ coming again, Lord, is judge. And we get this, this picture of that in the destruction of the temple. We get this picture of, of what judgment looks like on a smaller scale, Lord. And we can't even fathom what judgment looks like on a larger scale. But help that to motivate us and shape us, Lord, to not be ashamed of Christ and His gospel. Help a proper reflection of that motivate us to love others enough to publicly live out our faith for the cause of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.